Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And today, we're launching a new series about the life, crimes, and cultural reverberations of Charles Manson. Charles Manson's story contains multitudes. Of course, it's about madness and multiple murders executed by the so-called family, members of a cult that Manson created around his personal philosophy, which patched together elements of Christianity, Scientology, science fiction, garden-variety racism, Beatles lyrics, and Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Of course, it's the story of the 60s, and of how the utopian promise of the civil rights movement and the peace and love ambitions of the hippies curdled amidst a series of disasters. The Manson murders were preceded by the assassinations of Martin Luther King and both Kennedys, the election of Richard Nixon and the worsening situation in Vietnam, all events which were branded by someone as the death knell to the 60s, as was the killing of a Rolling Stones fan while the band played at Altamont three months after Manson was put behind bars for the last time. But the Manson murders were more than a 1960s phenomena. Charles Manson's coming-of-age years, marked by endemic poverty and a hopelessly cyclical family history of criminal activity, erodes the myth of America as a post-war paradise of prosperity and domestic bliss. The massacres that Manson became responsible for wouldn't just help kill off the 60s. And adding to a climate of paranoia that, for better or for worse, inspired members of the Hollywood community who lived in fear that they could be next, Manson helped to invent the 70s and that decade's groundbreaking wave of new American films. In fact, maybe more than anything else, Charlie Manson's story is a Hollywood story. It's the story of a guy who comes from as far away from Los Angeles as you can get, geographically and philosophically, who came to believe that stardom could redeem him, even after reinventing himself as the second coming of Jesus to dozens of disciples. Certain that fame and fortune are his destiny, he arrives in Los Angeles in late 1967, at a time when the very idea of who was going to get to be famous was beginning to be redefined. And yet he still couldn't find purchase in a community which, for all of its countercultural indulgences and lip service to tearing down the system, was still elitist, still essentially run by rich old guys and the kids of famous people. When the celebrities who he had rubbed shoulders with, hoping for an entree into the elite, ultimately declined to open those doors, Manson declared war on what he called, after the Beatles, piggies, advocating for the redistribution of their wealth by any means necessary. The most famous murders ordered by Manson, those of Roman Polanski's wife Sharon Tate and her house guests, 
were posited to his family as the necessary instigations of the racist prophecy he had been indoctrinating them in. But it's hard not to see them as the fulfilled revenge fantasy of one of the millions of pilgrims who have come to Hollywood looking to make their mark, only to be condescended and lied to and turned away with nothing to show for their efforts. Over the course of this series, we'll tell the stories of how Manson ended up in Los Angeles and of his relationships with and connections to all manner of show business figures, from Polanski and Tate to the Beach Boys to Kenneth Anger to Doris Day to John Waters. In this episode, we'll start by talking about what else was going on in the company town of Los Angeles in the late 1960s, setting the scene that the Manson murders blew apart. And then we'll briefly detail what those murders were, who was killed, and when, and how. Join us, won't you, as we learn exactly what it is that we talk about when we talk about the Manson murders. Before driving his followers to commit serial murder, Charles Manson was able to get remarkably far inside the L.A. cool kids scene, even though he was an ex-con who was clearly more than a little bit crazy, even openly violent. He managed this partially because he had an incredible understanding of seduction, sexual and otherwise, and partially because he came along at a time when a lot of the traditional barriers to entry were crumbling. The summer of the Manson murders was also the summer of the release of Easy Rider, Dennis Hopper's independently produced hippie road movie, which struck a major nerve in the culture and temporarily opened the minds of those in power, who then opened doors to young people who knew how to reach members of their own generation. For much of the second half of the 1960s, Hollywood's producers and executives were well aware that they had fallen out of touch with popular culture, that the generation of teens and university students who were turning on to drugs, tuning into social injustice, and threatening to drop out of society had no interest in most of Hollywood's products. While race riots and Vietnam protests were erupting in cities across the country, and right home in Hollywood, you had the Sunset Strip patrolled by the Hells Angels and prowled by the doors, the studios kept on releasing bloated historical epics which ignored the troubling current events on the nightly news, square musicals which pretended rock and roll didn't exist, and Doris Day romances, which still prized virginity and domesticity, as if the pill hadn't come along at the beginning of the decade and brought the first inklings of the sexual revolution along with it. A 20-year-old in 1966 couldn't see themselves, or their music, or their fashion, or their alienation and disaffection, on most movie screens. Unless they went to see an import, like Michelangelo and Tonioni's Blow Up, a gamble on the part of MGM which became the 10th highest-grossing film of that year. As long as the movies they were making continued to make money, Hollywood didn't care about the youth audience, and until The Graduate became the top-grossing movie of 1967, there was no evidence that they had to. As late as 1966, Warren Beatty couldn't get Jack Warner to return his calls. 
By 1968, he was well on his way to his future position as the president of Hollywood. The real turnaround wouldn't start to happen until 1969, when box office numbers sunk to historic lows, and the studio started throwing anything at the wall in the hopes that something would stick. But the seeds were first planted in 1967, when The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde elbowed their way to the Oscar table, alongside more typical Hollywood product like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and Dr. Doolittle. Bonnie and Clyde, mismanaged and ill-promoted by Warner Brothers, was a box office bomb until a number of film critics, particularly Pauline Kael in The New Yorker and Stefan Kanfer of Time magazine, advocated for the film, pushed it into the center of the zeitgeist, and gave star-slash-producer Warren Beatty the legs he needed to convince the studio to give the film a re-release. Bonnie and Clyde tapped into the frustration and antipathy that an entire generation felt for an establishment that had dragged their country into a bogus war in Vietnam and had taken the opportunities of the moment following World War II to create a culture of stifling consumerist conformity. Bonnie and Clyde's co-writer, David Newman, would say that the film's 1930s outlaws were stand-ins for contemporary revolutionaries like Abby Hoffman. The movie demonizes authority figures and romanticizes killers who want to be famous, legitimizing their plight. Beatty would brag that it was the bloodiest movie ever released at the time. In more ways than one, it paved the way for Charles Manson. Critics, as well as young, urbane audiences, were primed for Bonnie and Clyde's striking style and shocking content because they had seen the foreign films that inspired Beatty and director Arthur Penn and writers Newman and Robert Benton, films by Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard. This was a moment when going to see foreign films was cool, even socially and politically necessary. Members of the Black Panthers would go watch the Italian neorealist masterpiece The Battle of Algiers again and again, taking notes on its depiction of guerrilla warfare. Young people who were maybe inspired by these foreign film landmarks and who came to Hollywood in the mid-60s wanting to make movies themselves found a literal wasteland. The studios had started cutting costs by strip mining or abandoning their physical studio lots, With few jobs available, if you weren't the kid of somebody already on the inside, there was no way to break in. The solution for a lot of people was to go work for Roger Corman, who'd give pretty much anyone a chance to work as long as they used his money to make the B-movies that he knew how to sell, meaning biker films, horror movies, cheap westerns, and eventually, psychedelic curiosities like The Trip, scripted by Jack Nicholson and starring Peter Fonda. I'm Peter Fonda. We've just finished making a movie dealing with the most talked about subject of the day, LSD. I honestly believe it will be today's most talked about motion picture. The name of the picture is The Trip. Here goes. America wasn't ready for The Trip when it was finished in 1967. In 1967, in the heartland, Sonny and Cher were still considered freaks. And even in the film business, change was often so slow that it came embarrassingly late. 
1967, Sharon Tate, who at that point was just a blonde who had played a sexy secretary on the Beverly Hillbillies, was fifth billed in a beach comedy called Don't Make Waves, Hollywood's attempt to capitalize on a surf music scene that had fizzled out two years earlier. By 1967, the biggest stars of that scene, the Beach Boys, were in crisis thanks to Brian Wilson's drug use and mental problems and his inability to finish the album Smile. The big news in the L.A. music scene that summer was the triumphant Hollywood Bowl concert and subsequent decline of the Mamas and the Papas, who had inadvertently inspired millions of kids to pilgrimage to L.A. and San Francisco with their single California Dreaming, and were now beginning to tailspin down a slide of hard drugs and wife-swapping. Also making news that summer was the newfound success of contrivedly spooky rock lounge lizards, The Doors a band no one wanted to sign who got uncool pretty much as soon as they got famous. The Doors lacked credibility with the cool kids in part because they were so pretentious. They did things like appropriate a Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Vile composition as an anthem for Sunset Strip decadence, which seems much cooler in retrospect. Show me the way to the next whiskey bar. The Doors' evocation of the darkness just under the surface of the psychedelic fantasy would make some of their songs seem like canaries in the coal mine of the 60s, once the decade had gone horribly wrong. Even before that, Joan Didion was drawn to these, quote, missionaries of apocalyptic sex, she wrote, because their music insisted that love was sex and sex was death, and therein lay salvation. The Sunset Strip itself, originally so named because it was a strip of unincorporated land connecting Los Angeles and Beverly Hills, had long been a center of showbiz nightlife. In the 1940s, film stars hung out at Ciro's, or the Players Club, owned by Preston Sturges. In the 1950s, James Dean and his quasi-beatnik crew, which included the actress who would later host horror movies on TV in character as Vampira, got stoned at coffee houses where guys like David Crosby were getting their start as folk troubadours. It was a time, as future Brian Wilson collaborator Van Dyke Parks put it, of women in leotards discussing Marx and the Industrial Revolution. By 1965, the scene revolved around Crosby's new band, The Birds, who played a residency at Ciro's that attracted stars like Hopper, Nicholson, Sal Mineo and Lenny Bruce, and kids of stars like Peter Fonda, Errol Flynn's daughter Rory, and Terry Melcher, the record producer's son of Doris Day. Bird shows became known for their dance floors, which would devolve into one step removed from a public orgy. These wild antics were stoked by a couple of lingering beatniks named Vito Palakis and Carl Franzoni, guys in their 50s who always seemed to be surrounded by nearly naked girls. Praised for being freaks and envied for having harems, Palakis and Franzoni primed the other members of this scene for a guy like Charlie Manson, who acted crazy but had no problem finding and sharing 
highly available women. The rock scene on the Sunset Strip mirrored the egalitarianism of Corman's low-budget movie family, or maybe vice versa. Both were purposely devoid of the kind of stratification that ruled, say, the Hollywood actor community of the previous generation. To the new generation of turned-on Hollywood kids, the idea of a celebrity occupying a rarefied space was establishment bullshit. You could go right up to Mama Cass and talk to her, and probably get invited to get high at her house in Laurel Canyon, which, incidentally, she had bought from Natalie Wood, a signal of a power shift, which was further thrown into relief by the appearances of the old guard stars who'd occasionally come down to the Whiskey A Go-Go in an effort to prove they were hip, like Richard Burden and Elizabeth Taylor. That gambit didn't work. Amongst young people in Los Angeles at this time, if you weren't an outlaw, you were part of the problem. The Burden-Taylor generation saw a change coming, but they sunk in their heels for as long as possible. In April 1968, the Academy postponed the Oscar ceremony for the first time in history in recognition of Martin Luther King's murder on April 4th. When the ceremony was finally held on April 10th, the day after King's funeral, the generational divide dominated the evening. Bob Hope hosted... The major categories featured matchups like Bonnie and Clyde and the Graduate versus Dr. Doolittle. The old Hollywood of the Academy put the kids in their place by only begrudgingly acknowledging Bonnie and Clyde, giving it awards for Best Supporting Actress in Cinematography, but distributing the other six prizes it was nominated for to safer, less revolutionary films. But soon younger film executives started coming in, guys who were hip to the rock scene and foreign films, who began importing British and European directors, thinking the foreigners would be able to help Hollywood get hip. When gimmicky B-movie producer William Castle brought the novel Rosemary's Baby to Paramount, wanting to direct the film himself, studio chief Robert Evans decided that the only person who could direct it was Roman Polanski, the Polish filmmaker behind stylish thrillers like Repulsion. As we've discussed in previous episodes, Rosemary's Baby was a tortured production, but Polanski got results. Getting a career-making performance out of Mia Farrow as a flower generation waif trapped into spawning Satan by the cult that runs her apartment building, Polanski's film both paralleled the generation gap and invented modern horror. None of these successes, which would later be lumped together as the start of the new Hollywood, necessarily made Easy Rider an easy sell. Hopper and Fonda would play characters named Billy and Wyatt, after outlaw-turned-martyr Billy the Kid and criminal-turned-sheriff Wyatt Earp. The characters were equally inspired by Fonda and Hopper's Laurel Canyon rocker friends, like David Crosby and John Phillips of The Mamas and the Papas. Easy Rider was conceived as a film that would posit hippie bikers, society's rejects, as cowboy heroes under assault from a straight world who wanted to eradicate any threat to conformity. Dennis Hopper had started acting as a teenager, co-starring with James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause and Giant, and subsequently latching onto Dean's legacy hard, to the point that when Peter Fonda wanted to mess with Hopper's head, he'd say things like, Jimmy would have hated what you're doing. The Dean thing didn't do anything for Hopper's career. He had been blacklisted from Hollywood by the time he was 20, 
not for his political beliefs, but for causing delays on the set of a Henry Hathaway Western. His career started to turn around when he got married in 1961 to Brooke Hayward, the daughter of actress Margaret Sullivan and Hollywood power player Leland Hayward. Now married into Hollywood royalty, Hopper had a comfortable position from which to tear down the system. He'd confront studio executives at parties and prophesize, Heads are going to roll, the old order is going to fall, all you dinosaurs are going to die. He drank and took speed and acid and regularly beat up his wife. Both she and Peter Fonda were, at various times, convinced Hopper was going to kill them. Like Manson, Hopper had put in time in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco, getting burned out on acid. Like Manson, Hopper regularly compared himself to Jesus. Maybe it was ironic that the people who made this movie and the community they were part of and the revolution they represented would eventually become the establishment themselves. Or maybe that was the plan all along. The logline of Easy Rider was essentially the thesis of the philosophy Charles Manson had spent the last two years teaching to his followers, the endgame of which was nothing short of world domination. In a climate in which Dennis Hopper and Easy Rider could turn the movie world on its head, Charles Manson's stated ambition of becoming a rock star bigger than the Beatles may have been grandiose, but it wasn't totally implausible. And the murders he directed in the weeks following Easy Rider's release somehow fit perfectly into the tapestry of the times. As Didion wrote about the moment she heard that Sharon Tate had been killed, no one was surprised. Next week, we'll talk about who Charles Manson was and how he got dozens of people to do his terrible bidding. And later in this series, we'll talk about how his ambitions for stardom were dashed and how that led to the killings that would come to be known as the Manson murders. But first, let's briefly go through what those murders were, who died, and how. The first known target of Manson's murderous intentions was Bernard Crow, a black drug dealer who was so physically large that he got the nickname Lotsa Papa. By spring 1969, Manson was starting to face the reality that he wasn't going to become a rock star anytime soon, which meant there was nothing left for him in Los Angeles, except for the possibility that his followers would figure out that he was a fraud and would run away and leave him all alone. And so he created a crisis. He started coaching his family to prepare for a race war and told them that they were going to have to migrate out to Death Valley where there was a hole in the desert that would lead to an underground city where they could hide as black people rose up and exterminated all of the white people on Earth, at which point the Manson family could emerge and easily dominate the planet due to their inherent superiority as white people. As we'll learn next week, Charlie Manson was definitely, passionately racist. But whether or not he actually believed in the apocalyptic prophecy he was peddling, only he knows. 
In any case, he needed cash to fund the move to Death Valley, and he needed to give his followers some kind of a sign that the race war was coming. His claims that blacks were too stupid to know when or how to fulfill their destiny could only placate the family for so long. So Manson came up with a plan to set up a drug deal. Manson had a go-between offer to sell lots of papa, 25 kilos of pot, for $2,500. This pot didn't actually exist, but Manson was able to get the cash up front. When no drugs were delivered, Lotsa Papa called Charles Manson and threatened to kill him and his entire family. Not doubting for a second that he was serious, Manson drove down to Lotsa Papa's house in North Hollywood and shot him in the chest. Lotsa Papa was not technically one of the victims of the Manson family, but we'll get to that later. After this, Charlie became convinced that he and his family were at war with the Black Panthers. Lots of Papa hadn't even been a Black Panther, but all scary black guys were the same to Charles Manson. At first, Manson thought that he would be protected by the Straight Satans, a motorcycle gang whose members would regularly visit the Manson compound north of Topanga Canyon to have sex with the girls there. In July 1969, a straight Satan member who lived on the ranch full-time named Danny DiCarlo made a deal to buy a bunch of mescaline from a Topanga music teacher named Gary Hinman. In this deal, Bobby Beausoleil, a friend of Manson's who had been a former muse of cult filmmaker Kenneth Anger, served as the middleman. DiCarlo gave Beausoleil $1,000, which he passed along to Hinman in exchange for the drugs. But the straight Satans took the mescaline and decided it wasn't any good, and DiCarlo then demanded that Beausoleil get his money back. Manson was worried that if this went bad, the straight Satans would leave the ranch, leaving his family unable to defend themselves from the Black Panthers. Plus, Manson knew Hinman had money. Or, at least, he had a couple of cars, which could be of use. So Charlie sent Bobby Beausoleil and three members of the family to Hinman's house in Topanga Canyon. Armed with a gun and a knife, Bobby threatened Hinman and demanded money. Hinman said he didn't have any money. After beating and torturing Hinman for hours, Bobby still couldn't get any money out of him. And so he called Charlie, who told him, You know what to do. So Bobby stabbed Hinman to death and he used the dead man's blood to paint a paw print and write the words political piggy on the wall of Hinman's house, thinking this would implicate the Black Panthers in the crime. It didn't work, and Beausoleil was picked up soon thereafter and thrown in jail. Back at the ranch, talking over what to do to help Bobby, the family members remembered seeing a movie in which a killer was freed from prison after a second murder, similar to the one he was accused of committing, took place while he was behind bars. Manson's disciples, most of whom were teenagers, most of whom were seriously damaged by too much acid use, then got this idea that if they killed more people and wrote more words on walls in blood, the authorities would figure Bobby was innocent and let him out. So, on August 8th, 1969, Charlie sent four family members to a house in the hills separating Beverly Hills from the valley at 10,050 Cielo Drive. Charlie had visited the house in the past, 
It used to be the home of actress Candace Bergen and her boyfriend, Terry Melcher, a record producer who Manson had once believed was his best shot at stardom. Charlie told his deputy, Tex Watson, that the mission was to, quote, totally destroy everyone in the house and to make the crime scene as gruesome as possible. They arrived shortly after midnight. In the driveway leading up to the house, Tex shot Stephen Parent, an 18-year-old boy who had been visiting William Gerritsen, the caretaker of the property who lived in the guest house. While family member Linda Kasabian stayed outside to stand guard, the rest of the family members then entered the house through a window. Inside, they found Wojciech Frokowski, a friend of Roman Polanski's, asleep on the couch. Family member Susan Atkins tied his wrists with a towel, and when he started struggling free, Atkins began stabbing Frokowski in the legs. He had managed to crawl out to the porch of the house when Tex took over, smashing the handle of his pistol over Frykowski's head, stabbing him some more, and finally shooting him twice. Between Tex and Susan, Wojciech Frykowski was stabbed 51 times. Tex also shot Jay Sebring, a celebrity hairdresser whose close friends included Dennis Hopper and Steve McQueen, and when Sebring didn't die right away, Tex stabbed him seven times. Abigail Folger, who was Frykowski's girlfriend as well as the heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune, ran out the back door of a bedroom and around to the front lawn, where family member Patricia Krenwinkel caught her and began stabbing her. Here, Tex also stepped in. By the time she finally died, Abigail Folger had been stabbed 21 times. There was only one person left in the house, and that was Sharon Tate, the gorgeous, blonde actress and wife of Roman Polanski. Sharon was eight months pregnant with Polanski's child. Sharon begged Susan Atkins to let her live, if only to save the life of her child. Accounts vary as to what happened next. Both Susan Atkins and Tex Watson have bragged that they killed Tate and then later denied it. But in the end, the actress was stabbed 21 times. Tate and Polanski's unborn son died in his mother's womb an estimated 20 minutes after Sharon stopped breathing. In order to leave the impression that this massacre had been committed by the same entity which murdered Gary Hinman, before they left, Susan dipped a towel in Tate's blood and wrote, Pig, on the Cielo Mansion's front door. Charlie Manton was convinced that his family members had somehow botched the job. The next night, he filled up a car with the same four disciples as the previous night, plus himself and two more, Leslie Van Houten and Clem Grogan. Without a clear destination in mind, they drove around for hours, finally ending up at the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. The car stopped in front of a house where the family had once gone to a party, Manson got out and went into the house next door, where he tied up Rosemary and Leno LaBianca, a middle-aged couple who managed supermarkets. 
Manson then sent Tex, Leslie, and Patricia inside the house to kill them. Tex stabbed both Mr. and Mrs. LaBianca with a bayonet. It took 12 stabs to kill Leno, and when he was done, Tex carved the word war into the dead man's stomach. Leslie and Patricia stabbed Rosemary with a knife taken from her own kitchen. Mrs. LaBianca's body had 41 stab wounds. Patricia used blood from both bodies to write messages on the walls. Rise and death to pigs. On the refrigerator, she wrote Heel Tar Skelter, a misspelling of the title of a Beatles song, which Manson had appropriated as branding for the fictional race war he had convinced his followers they were going to play a part in. About three weeks later, back at the ranch, Manson became suspicious of a stuntman named Shorty Shea, who worked on the low-budget Western movies and TV episodes shot on the same land that the Manson family lived on. Manson had a number of grievances against Shorty, which we'll get into later, but after the ranch was raided by police, who hadn't figured out that Manson was responsible for what we now call the Manson murders, but did confiscate a bunch of stolen cars, Manson decided that Shorty was probably an informant, and he had to go. One night in late August 1969, Shorty Shea got into a car with Manson and family members Clem Grogan and Bruce Davis. Shorty was never seen alive again. It took eight years before he was seen at all. Shea's body was finally found, buried on the ranch in 1977, thanks to a tip from an incarcerated Grogan. It would take the LAPD months to make arrests in what they'd end up calling the Tate-LaBianca murders, and years to convict any of the killers. And in that span of time, Charlie Manson finally got what he came to Los Angeles for. He became famous. Join us, won't you, over the next ten episodes as we take a tour through Charlie Manson's Hollywood. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. And please follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can. Anything you can do to spread the word helps. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and rate and review the show there or on really any podcatcher of your choice. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Good night.